Well, good morning, Grace Church. It's good to see you guys here this morning as we are continuing in a series we started about four weeks ago now that we've been calling The Thrill of Hope. And like Clark said, if you're a guest with us this morning or if this is your first time here, thanks so much for being here. We just uh, absolutely counted a privilege that you would spend your Sunday morning with us here together. And if you are just visiting or if you're a guest with us, uh, let me just do a little bit of a recap as far as what we've been talking about. So like I, like I said, we've been in this series now for about four weeks. And so about a month ago, we sat down together and uh, we started this conversation by looking at the big idea. And the big idea of this series, we introduced by way of one verse. And so we looked at a verse that was in the book of Colossians. And uh, this was the verse that we looked at together. It was in Colossians. And you can take a look at this with me, Colossians chapter 2. It says that these are a shadow of the things that were to come but the reality, however, is found in Christ. And so we looked at that verse together, and we, we kind of explained the circumstance of why that verse was written. And we said that really, the reason that this verse was written is because there was a guy called the Apostle Paul, and he was writing to a church, a place uh, called Colossae. And the reason he wrote this is because he was referring to um, the holidays and traditions that the Jewish people celebrated in the Old Testament. And basically what he was saying is, is he was saying that all of the traditions and all of the celebrations and all of the holidays that the, old, that the people would have celebrated in the Old Testament um, were shadows of a greater reality, which its substance was found in Christ. In other words, what he was saying is that all of these celebrations and all these, all these holidays are foreshadowings of a greater reality, the substance that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the reason the Apostle Paul wrote this verse then was basically he was kind of encouraging and in some ways, he was kind of warning the church there. He's saying, don't chase shadows and lose the substance. In other words, what he was saying is, don't make these celebrations and these traditions and these holidays simply about these celebrations and these traditions and these holidays and miss the substance, which is all really about the person of Jesus Christ. And so we said, by way of introduction, we said that even though we live in a different time and place and culture, um, that in some ways, we live in a, a very kind of congruent situation. Um, as, as it relates to our culture in Christmas, right? During Christmas time, we kind of put it this way. We said during Christmas time in our culture, it's easy for us to chase shadows, right? Um, it's easy for us to make Christmas about all kinds of other things, about the lights and about the gifts and about the celebrations and about the family. And, and don't get me wrong, all those are really, really, really good things. But it's easy for us to make Christmas about those things and then miss out on the substance of Christmas, which of course is the person of Jesus Christ, right? And so we said that the reason that we want to do this series together is because uh, we want to kind of process together in a healthy and a helpful way through this holiday season. And we don't want to chase shadows this year and miss the substance. And so that's why we're doing this series is so that we can kind of focus our hearts and our attention together on the substance of Christmas, the person of Jesus Christ, and enjoy the shadows, enjoy them. Um, but not lose the substance to the shadows. And so that's what we're trying to do um, through this series. And so in the series, and what we've been doing is each week we've been talking about how the shadows of Christmas, the things that we tend to want to make Christmas about, find their substance in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we've been doing that each week. Now, let me just say that if, if anything I just said sounds intriguing to you or maybe confusing to you, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the previous messages in the series. Um, you can do that on our website if you'd like to. We also have an app. If you open up um, uh, the app store and you search for Grace Ohio, you will find the Grace Church app. You can download that. You can listen to all of our messages. Um, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast all for free, and that might kind of catch you up to speed with what we've been talking about. Uh, but for today, as we continue in this conversation, this morning we want to talk about the thrill of home, the thrill of home, H-O-M-E. And what we want to talk about is how 
the desire that we often have this time of year during Christmas for home, right? The deep desire that we have to be with loved ones, to be home during Christmas is a shadow that ultimately finds its substance in the person of Jesus Christ. So what am I talking about? We're going to talk about that today. Um, There is no doubt about it, no doubt about it, that during the Christmas season, our hearts naturally turn homeward, right? We just, we have this craving inside of us to want to be home for the holidays. It's something we see in our culture. We sing about it, right? I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, We see it in the movies that we watch. Um, That's why movies like Home Alone are so terrible because he is home alone, right? And it's a bad thing because, because we want to be with our loved ones. We, we go to the celebrations. We think about the traditions. We think about being with our family. And there's something that warms our heart about being home for the holidays, right? In fact, for some of you, uh, we're, we're looking down the barrel of Christmas this week, so it's coming. And many of you are getting ready to go and travel to be with loved ones. Some of you are going to travel um, out of town uh, to go be with family members, to, to go to grandma's house, to do a tradition that you've always done, something where the family gets together and you can be home for the holidays. For some of you, you're going to be traveling out of state, um, getting in the car and going somewhere and braving the traffic so that you can be with loved ones, so that you can be home, right? And, and there's something about being home. For some of you, uh, maybe you, maybe you're here today because you've come home for Christmas, right? And maybe you're a college student who just got done with the semester, which praise God, hallelujah, right? You, you turned in that last assignment. Isn't that the greatest feeling in the world, turning in that last? You stay up till six in the morning, and then you turn it in. You're like, I'm done, and then you get to go home, and now you're home. And doesn't it feel so good to be home for the holidays? And I think that, that there's something about that. And that's why when you can't be home for the holidays, it can be really hard. Right? For some of you, you're, maybe you're in that situation. Maybe for some of you, you want to be home, but you can't be uh, because either you're working, which that's like the cardinal sin, man, to have to work on Christmas. Or, or maybe for you, um, you, you know, you can't be home because home is way, way away. It's a distance from you. Or maybe you're new to Medina. You're kind of moved into this area and, and you still doesn't quite feel like home to you yet. And so it feels kind of foreign to be here in your heart yearns to be home during this time of year, it could be hard to not be home for Christmas. Actually, remember when I was in college, I, I, I went to college in Chicago and I, I ended up living there after I graduated. And so I spent about five years in Chicago and I'm originally from Ohio. And I, I remember that um, most of the holidays I was able to get home for Christmas and for Thanksgiving, those type of things. I'd either hop a plane or I'd try to bum a ride from somebody. Uh, but there was one year I remember very, very specifically that I wasn't able to get home. It was Thanksgiving, I remember, because I had to work on Black Friday. I was uh, working in the retail industry at that time and had to work on Black Friday. And I remember I was stuck in Chicago. By my, I lived right downtown, and I was stuck in Chicago by myself on Thanksgiving. And it was one of the strangest experiences I've ever had because I remember all my roommates, you know, I lived in an apartment with a, with a couple of roommates and they had all went home because as you guys know, anyone who lives in the city in downtown, you know, Chicago, or downtown any city, um, no one is actually from the city, right? And so everyone goes home uh, for the holidays. And so I remember I was kind of by myself and I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm not going to hang out in the apartment by myself on Thanksgiving. That would be so depressing. So I'm like, I'm going to get out. I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to go maybe catch a movie. Maybe get some, you know, Giordano, Chicago-style pizza that always warms my heart. You know, and I was like, maybe I'll go do that. And it was the most eerie thing because I remember walking down Michigan Avenue on Thanksgiving, and there was nobody there. It was like a ghost town, man. The stores were closed. The pizza shops were closed. Everything was closed. And I remember just distinctively getting this feeling of incredible homesickness 
where I was just like, man, I wish I could be home. My mind started to go homeward. I started thinking about what's my family doing right now? And I'm like, oh, they're probably eating turkey right now. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, oh, right about now, you know, uncle such and such is probably making off color jokes again. And man, I wish I could be hearing those right now. And, you know, and oh man, grandma and her, her green bean casserole thing, you know, I want that right now. And I started to think about being home and there's something about it, man. We want to be home uh, for the holidays. This is probably why for some of you, Christmas is really hard. For some of you, Christmas is a really hard time. And maybe the reason is because there was a, there's a home that you yearn for, that you want to go back to, that's impossible to go back to. Uh, for some of you, maybe there's a person in your life that, that is so intertwined with, with, the, with the idea of home. Maybe it's a parent or a loved one or a spouse or something, and you've lost that person since then. And, and so now Christmas is hard because you feel like you've lost something that's part of home, right? It's a home that you yearn for that you can never go back to. Um, or maybe for some of you, there was a family structure that was in place. And, and since then, there's been divorce or something has happened and the family situation is broken up and you can never go back to that time of home again, right? And of course, this is where nostalgia comes in. Nostalgia is an interesting thing, isn't it? Nostalgia is a major part of the Christmas season, has a lot to do with Christmas, this idea of nostalgia. And nostalgia, I don't know if you guys are real familiar with what that is, but it's a, it's a really weird phenomenon, but it is a common universal thing that happens among humanity. In fact, it's interesting. I was studying a little bit about nostalgia this week. And uh, just for our sake, let me give you a quick definition of what nostalgia is. This comes from dictionary.com. It talks about nostalgia. It says, it is a wistful desire to return in thought or in fact to a former time in one's life to one's home or one's homeland, or to one's family and friends. It is a sentimental yearning for the happiness of a former place in time, right? So we all know what nostalgia is. Nostalgia is when I look back and say, oh, things were so good back then. Oh, remember back when? See, I think that this is a big part of Christmas. This is what a lot of the traditions are about, right? We are trying to relive a a, a time that warms our heart, a memory that somehow reminds us of home. That's this idea of nostalgia. I'll give you another quick definition. I'll just read this one to you. It actually comes from uh, Svetlana Boyne. She's a professor of Slavic literature at Harvard University. It's pretty awesome. And she says this, she says, nostalgia is a longing for home that no longer exists, listen to this, or perhaps has never existed. And, and, and it's interesting, when you look at the word nostalgia, um, one of the things that you come to learn is this is a common human experience that we have. It's a strange phenomenon across all cultures, across all ages. The actual term itself was coined in the 1600s, nostalgia, by a Swiss, by a Swiss physician. And he, it was actually originally thought to be a disease, but the word nostalgia itself actually comes from two words, two Greek words, which mean home and ache. That's where nostalgia comes from. It is a home ache. It is a longing and a desire to be home either a home in the past or a home that you've lost or home in some way, there is something inside, there's something common to the human situation that we all long for and desire home. It's a homemake. It's a homesickness, right? It's a pain. It's a longing for home. And here's, here's the weird thing is that uh, researchers have found that not only is nostalgia something that's common among all humans, it's something that's common to the human experience. And it's a strange phenomenon. It's also unbelievably powerful this nostalgia that we feel inside of us. So for example, uh, researchers have found, according to one study by uh, something called the Y factor, uh, they found that researchers have discovered that nostalgia actually makes you feel warmer. 
that when you're in a state of nostalgia, that you physically feel warmer. And, and so it has a way of raising your body temperature. So, so when people say like, oh, when I think back to grandma's house when I was a kid, it just warms my heart. And you know what? That's true. It does. It warms your heart. It warms you physically. Um, in, in addition to this, marketing research has found, there, uh, the Journal of Consumer Research found that feelings of nostalgia um, is a wonderful marketing tool that when we are in a state of nostalgia, we are mar- more likely to part from our cash. And so this is why Coca-Cola, for example, when they run their advertisement ads, especially during Christmas, you probably notice they go for the Norman Rockwell-esh uh, nostalgic feeling. Look, why is that? Because they want your money. And it works, right? Or Pepsi-Cola. Some of you guys might remember recently they did a whole ad campaign. Remember the whole throwback thing? And they would uh, release cans that were throwbacks from different uh, eras and periods of time. What are they doing? They're capitalizing on the market of nostalgia because uh, marketers know and researchers know that nostalgia is a powerful force. It's a powerful emotion, this ache for home, this ache for the familiar, this home ache that exists um, inside of us. And the other thing that's weird about nostalgia, about this home desire, is that it's powerful, it's universal, it's something that's common among people, but it's also very deceiving, right? It's also very deceiving because nostalgia has a way, and you guys know this, nostalgia has a way of making us glorify, idealize, um, exaggerate things in our past in an unrealistic way, doesn't it? Because we think about it and we're like, oh, back then, back then, Everything was perfect, right? Everyone got along back then. It's like, no, they didn't. Right? No, they didn't. Are you like, man, in high school, back in high school, I was awesome in high school. No, you weren't. You just weren't, you know? Back in high school, I could throw a pigskin a quarter mile, you know? You're like, no, you could. No one can do that, right? And we have a way of glor- glorifying and exaggerating things. Nostalgia has a way of doing that, right? And so what is there to say then? about this deep desire that we have inside of us for home, to want to be home, the, the nostalgia that we sometimes feel, the ache that we have to return to places maybe in our past. And what I want to talk about today is that I think that, that 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 feeling that we have for home is a shadow that points to an eternal substance, something that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to grab them with me if you will. Today we're actually going to look at two passages of the Bible uh, together. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at John chapter 14. We're going to look at these two passages of Scripture together. And, uh, and so if you've got your Bibles, if you want to take them and turn to both of those passages. So Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in, and then we're going to end our time in John chapter 14. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's not a problem. There should be some Bibles that are out there in the chairs. And so you can just go ahead and grab one of those, turn to the pages that you see there. Um, and if you want to, you can just put a placeholder in John 14, if you want to, because we're going to, like I said, we're going to finish there. We're going to start in Genesis chapter one, and then we're going to get there. Also, let me just say that if, if you, uh, if you would like to access these passages with your phone or with your iPad or whatever, um, you can download the Grace Church app off the app store, just search for Grace Ohio, and then these passages will both be available for you on that app. They're already prepared for you. And so you can check that out. Okay, so however you get there, Genesis one on page one, and then John 14. All right, and as you're getting there, uh, let me set up a little bit of of where we're going to start in Genesis. So in Genesis, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 are some of the most important uh, chapters in the entire Bible. And um, the entire Bible is really important, the whole thing, cover to cover, very, very important, inspired word of God. Uh, But there are some sections of scripture that are just so foundational. 
And Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is one of those passages because it gives us the origins of the human story, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3 tells us basically the story and the account of human creation, of what God did to create humans. And in Genesis chapter 1, in the passage we're about to look at, one of the things that you notice in Genesis chapter 1 is that it is giving us an account of how God created all things. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it's going to go on from there in Genesis chapter 1, and it's going to explain these successive steps in which God creates all three things over a period of time that are called days. And so day one, the Bible says that God creates, you know, he creates the universe, he creates the expanse. And the Bible explains to us with that each successive step of creation, that each day, at the end of the day, after God creates something, he looks at it and he declares that it is good. So God creates the stars and he creates the, the, the planets and he says it is good. And then a day passes, and then the Bible says he, 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 he separates land from sea, and he looks at it, and he says it's good. And then he creates the animals, and he looks at it, and he says it's good. And each successive step of creation, God declares that it is good. Now, that's really important. And here's why that's important. In the Hebrew language, much like in the English language, there are two ways in which you can use the word good, two senses, right? One of the ways you can use the word good is referring to morality, so good and evil, Right? And, and so, for example, if I say God is good, what I'm speaking about is God's moral perfection. God is morally perfect. There is no evil in him. He is not bad. He is good. That is a statement of morality. Or if I said the devil is bad, I'm saying that he's morally corrupt, right? That he is without moral excellence. That is a moral declarative statement to say that something is good. That's one sense that you can use the word good, but there is another sense that you can use the word good in the English language and in the Hebrew language. And it has nothing to do with morality. It has everything to do with purposefulness and usefulness. So for example, if I said to you, this season, the Browns are no good, right? Now that is a true statement, right? But I am not giving you, I am not giving you a moral declaration about the Browns. I'm not saying the Browns are evil, right? They're not evil. Now, Pittsburgh, they're evil, right? They might be a good team, but they're, they are from the devil, right? And uh, if, you're, if you're a Steelers fan, I apologize. That's uh, just picking on you. Uh, but, but for the Browns fans, what we're saying, when we're saying the Browns aren't good, we're not talking about moral excellence. We're talking about their usefulness. They are not useful to the game of football this year. Not, there's always next season, right? There's always next season, but that's where we're at. Or let me give you another analogy. So right now, my youngest boy, I don't know where he got it in his mind, but he's been bothering me to build him a birdhouse. I don't know where he got this idea. He's like, Dad, will you build me a birdhouse? And I'm hoping he'll forget about it, but he just keeps saying it. So I think I'm going to have to build him a birdhouse. Um, but it's, imagine, for illustration's sake, that I sat down and I started to write up some plans for a birdhouse. And I got all my, you know, all my stuff ready. I got my plans ready. Let's say I got all the parts. I got all the, the materials. I got my saw. I got my tools. And let's say I went down to my tool bench and I started to build this, uh, this birdhouse. And I began by making my first cut. And let's say that I made a cut in the wood. And after I was done, I looked at it and I said, ah, man, that cut's bad. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that, that am I making a moral declaration about the piece of, this wood is evil. It's from Satan. Is that what I'm saying? Well, no, because it's a piece of wood. It's a cut. It can't be neither good or bad. It's not immoral or moral. It's an amoral thing. What I'm saying is it's bad for my purposes, right? This isn't good according to my plan. And, and this might be a fantastic cut to, for another plan, but for this plan, it's not good. Let's say I finished the birdhouse and I looked at it and I said, oh, that's good. That is good. 
What am I saying? I'm not saying anything about its moral excellence. What I'm talking about is that it's a good house for a bird, right? It's probably a bad house for a dog. It's probably a bad house for a human, but it's a good house for a bird. It's good for my purposes. Now, commentators, when they look at Genesis chapter 1 and they see God declaring each successive step is good, um, what, what commentators agree with is that he is not making a moral declaration about creation. Because think about it. Can land or sea be either good or evil? That's not what God has in mind when he's creating. What he's saying is, this is good for my purpose. This is good for my use. This is good for the plan that I have in mind, which begs a really good question then. What was the plan that God had in mind? What was the use? What was the purpose in which God created, right? Who was it good for? And this is what I want to try to submit to you today, is that when God created in Genesis chapter 1, who he had in mind, who it was good for, was us, was humanity. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that kind of sounds self-serving, doesn't it? That sounds a little narcissistic for us to say that all that God created is for us to give him glory, but it's for us, right? Come on, seriously? That's why I want you to look at verse 27 because I want you to notice what he says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So look at this. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Now, I want to just pause there because I want to draw your attention to one little word that I think is so significant that we can read past, and it's this little word, so. Notice this, so God created mankind in his own image. Now, that's so important, and the reason that's important is if you have Genesis chapter 1 in front of you, I want you just to notice something. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, you notice that each successive step of creation, it begins with, and God said. So in verse 3, and God said, let there be light. In verse 6, and God said, let there be a vault. In verse 9, and God said. In verse 14, and God said. In verse 20, and God said. In verse 24, and God said. And so it's almost like there's this continuation that each successive step of creation, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, until you get to verse 27, and it says, so. So. As if to say, the stage is set. Everything is put in order. And now, here's the reason that God was doing all the creating that he was doing so. The crown jewel of creation. Here comes the climax. Here comes the epicenter of why God was doing all the creating. So God made man. He made Adam and Eve. But then, but then it doesn't stop there because look what happens next. Look at verse 28. And so God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Then listen to this. He says, I want you to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves in the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and to all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath, I give it to you. Everything that has a breath of life, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that all he made, and it was very good. For the first time in all creation, it wasn't just good, it was very good. So do you see what's happening here? God is creating, creating, creating. He's separating, saying, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. And then finally, he's like, so now here comes people. And then he, he, he puts humanity into the earth, and he says, it's all yours. I made it all for you. Now everything, the ground, the animals, the plants, it's all yours. It's almost as if... God was preparing a home, a perfect home for humanity. And then when it was all ready, he created mankind and then he threw him the keys. Welcome home. 
This is a, this is a home that God has created for humanity. Listen, in Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, there was home. God made a perfect place, a perfect dwelling that was entirely and perfectly suitable for human thriving and for human, for human flourishing. Everything was perfect as God created it. There was, and Genesis chapter two is gonna go on to tell us that when God created home in the beginning, that it was a perfect home. It was perfect. We had perfect harmony with God. We had perfect harmony with each other. There was no death. There was no decay. There was no entropy. None of those things happened in this home. It was a perfect home that God created for humans. But then something the Bible tells us happens. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the world, and Adam and Eve disobey God. And the Bible tells us that when that sin entered into the world, that home as God created it was broken that the perfect home that God established for us was lost, that paradise was lost. And the Bible says that there was a whole set of ramifications and curses that happened as a result of that. And so the Bible explains that because of sin entering in the world, our relationship with God has become disjointed. Our relationship with each other is out of whack. Our relationship with the world that we live in is out of whack. And one of the things that God says is one of the curses because sin entered in the world is something that I don't know if you ever saw this before, but I just want to point it out to you. I'll put it up on the screen. This is in Genesis chapter three. It says this, it says, after the fall, so the Lord God banished him, that's Adam and of course Eve too, from the garden of Eden to work the ground from the land which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden, a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so you see what happens. After Adam and Eve's sin, one of the curses, one of the ramifications of that is the Bible says that Adam and Eve are now banished from their home. They are evicted from the perfect home, the Garden of Eden that God has created, and there is no way for them to get back. And listen, from this point forward, from Genesis chapter 3 to this very moment today, a normal part of the human experience is that each one of us is wandering in this life. There is a deep home ache that is inside of our hearts. And the Bible explains that that finds its origins all the way back in Genesis chapter three, that we lost a home that we've never seen. And there's a desire in us to go back to that home, an eternal home that God has created for us. Because if you think about it for a minute, just think about it. What is home anyway? You guys all know this, right? Home is not limited to just an address. It's not just bricks and mortar. It's not just a place. We all know that. Home is, when we talk about homeness, there's much more than that, right? To be home, what we're usually talking about is a sense of belonging. Home is a place you belong. Home is a place that you're accepted, right? Home is a place where you can be fully yourself. Without guarded, without a guardedness, without insecurity, you're just free to be you. That's what home is, right? Home is a place where all the sights and all the smells and all the sounds, man, they just all fit, right? It's right. It's, it's a place of warmth, of relational warmth. It's a place of security. It's a place where, where when you come in after being gone for a long time, that others rise to greet you. That's home, right? It's kicking your shoes off. It's being able to laugh a little bit louder and want to stay a little bit longer. Home, home is a place where everybody knows your name, right? And they're always glad you came, right? That's actually cheers. And, and I would also just charge you not to make your home a bar. But anyway, right? So home is like, that's what it is though. We, and, and listen, man, we're created for that. We're created for home. We long for that. 
And, and we find it in many different things, or at least we try to find it in many different things, but we crave that. Think about it. Why is it that when we lose home, it's so saddening? When you lose a person close to you, someone who's so associated with your definition of home, it can feel like you lost part of yourself, right? Or for some of you, when you graduate college and, and, you, and you leave the friend group that you've established for the previous four years, or for some of you five years, or for some of you six years, the previous years of college that you're in, and you leave that friend group and it feels like you've lost home, right? Why is that? Look, it's because you're made for this. You're made for this. Why is it that one of the most psychologically damaging things a person can go through is a season of homelessness? Why is that? It's because we're made for this. Why is it that psychologists tell us that when children don't, don't have a sense of home established in them from a young age, that they will grow up with severe detachment disorders, the inability to, to interact meaningfully and deeply, uh, deeply with other humans? Why is that? It's because we're created for this. Home is stamped in our hearts. We need it. We crave it. We desire it. And there's this nostalgia inside of us. We ache for home. But listen, the Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us that desire that we have for home is not something that can be satisfied by the temporary shadows of this earth. Not entirely. But instead it points to an eternal need, a substance, something much deeper that we are yearning for a home that we've never seen, a perfect home that God has created for us. Some authors, this might sound kind of interesting to you, some authors call it cosmic nostalgia. Cosmic nostalgia, that we are all in our hearts yearning for a home that we've never seen or we can't articulate. And I'll just tell you, and this might sound hippie-esque to some of you, but there are some times that when I, when I read that term, uh, cosmic nostalgia, it made all kinds of sense to me. And it articulated a feeling that I feel so many times. Like every time I go outside and I look up at the stars, I get full of this longing, man. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I get full of this longing, this, this uh, homesickness. And I don't even know what I want. I don't even know what I'm craving. It's like I'm craving a home I've never seen, man. What is that? Why is it that for me sometimes when I see, when I see uh, just a breathtaking sunset, I'm a nature guy, if you can't tell. My wife, she, cannot, she can't relate with anything I'm talking about right now. For, she's totally relational. She feels this way when she sees a baby. When I see a baby... I just see poopy diapers, you know, but she sees, she sees something different than what I see. But for me, I see a breathtaking sunset and it's, it, it causes a, a longing in my heart that I can't even articulate. And I'm like, what is, I'm like homesick for something. I don't even know what I'm homesick for. What is that? What is that? And the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three says it this way. It says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man, that God has stamped home in your heart. And ever since Genesis chapter three, we are in a place where we are wandering through this life, trying to find belonging, trying to find acceptance, trying to find a place where we can fully be who we are. But the Bible says that Genesis chapter three, since then, paradise has been lost and we've lost home. And so God knew this, right? God knew that we were banished from the garden. God knew that we were unable to find home ever again on our own. And so what did he do about it? What did God do about that? And uh, look, this is where Christmas comes in, man. Because the Bible tells us that God did one of the most unexpected things imaginable during Christmas. That at Christmas time, God, knowing that we had no ability to make our way back home to him, that instead he made his home among us. The Bible says that Jesus Christ left the luxuries of heaven and he came to earth and he made his dwelling with us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. That is, he made his home here. 
Why did he do that? Why did Jesus Christ come here? Why did he have to come in human form? And the Bible tells us the reason that Jesus Christ came was to show us the way back home again. He came to find us, to tell us, and to show us the way home. And what's the way home? That's where John 14 comes in. So take your Bibles, flip over to John 14. I want you to see these powerful words that Jesus gives in John 14. So in John 14, as you're flipping there, I'll give you just a small amount of context. This is the end of Jesus' life on earth. Um, He has been doing his ministry for three years with a group of his disciples. They have spent pretty much every waking moment together. And now Jesus is facing the cross. He's about to be crucified. And he's spending these last moments with his disciples. And the Bible says his disciples are troubled and saddened beyond consolation. They're so sad because these are guys who have staked everything on following Jesus. They have made Jesus their home. And now he's going to leave. And so Jesus offering his disciples words of consolation is about to say something that's so incredible. So I want you to see what he says in verse, for, uh, start in verse one. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Then listen to this. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, what I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that you will be where I am. Then he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And of course, Thomas speaks up. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how are we supposed to know the way? And then Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. Man, you guys know, you guys notice the words that Jesus gives his disciples to console them in this. Do you see what he's doing? He, he says, notice what he says to them. Of course, in this passage, what Jesus is referring to is he's referring to the eternal state of existence that God is preparing for all of those who love and believe in him. He's talking about heaven. But do you notice the words that he uses to describe heaven? He says, listen, in my father's house, my father's house. Now there's a lot of ways you can describe heaven. He could have said, um, in the kingdom of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And that would have been an accurate way to describe heaven. That would have been accurate. He could have said, um, in the sanctuary of the unapproachable living God. He could have done that, right? But he didn't use stale words. He used relational words. He said, in your father's, my father, in his house. Man, think about that for a minute. Who lives in a house? Who lives in a house, right? The subjects don't live in a house. Slaves don't live in a house. Strangers don't live in a house. Family lives in a house. He says, you guys, don't be troubled. I'm gonna take you home take you to my father's house. There's plenty of rooms. And you notice what else he says in this passage? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Isn't it true? There's something about a prepared place, isn't there? That just screams home, a prepared place. That's why when you come home from college, if you're home from college this semester, isn't it so awesome when you come in and your mom and dad are like, hey, we've prepared your room for you. You're like, oh, that's why it's so hurtful when your parents are like, oh, hey, since you left college, uh, we made your room into the dog's room. And so you're going to have to sleep in the garage now, right? That's why that's like, that you're like, oh, I guess I'm not home anymore. Something about a prepared place. Isn't there? There's something about when you go to your family function and they've prepared a seat for you. Hey, we've got, we've got a place for you. We have a plate for you. We have all the stuff for you. We made enough food for you. We are prepared for you. Something about a prepared place, isn't there? Isn't there something about when a loved one in your family knows that you're coming and they make a dish, especially because they know you're there? 
this is my mother-in-law. She's always doing this. She's like, hey, I knew you were going to come, so I made this dish for you. And I'm like, oh, I love you, you know. And she's prepared for me, and there's something about a prepared place. And what Jesus says in this passage is, he says, listen, I'm going to my father's house, and I am preparing a place for you. And in the same way in Genesis chapter 1, we see God delicately and intricately developing and creating a place for humanity and saying, it's good. Jesus is creating a place for us in heaven, a home, real home, the home we've all been longing for. And Jesus says, and you guys, I'm going to come back and get you. And he says, and you know the way, you know how to get home now. And Thomas is like, Jesus, we don't even know what the heck you're talking about. How are we supposed to get there? And Jesus says to him, you know the way, Thomas, because you know me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the way back home. I have come here to this earth and I have made my dwelling among you so that I can take you back home. I want to bring you home. That's why 1 Peter chapter 3 puts it so well. I'll just put it on the PowerPoint. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time, though he never sinned. He died for sinners. Look at this. To bring you safely home to God. Jesus Christ came on this earth to live a perfect life and then to die for the sins of humanity so that we might be broadly safe back to the home that God has established for us. So what does this mean then? Like, practically speaking, what do you do with a message like this? And uh, I think there's at least two things. I'll mention two, and then we'll be finished. But I think one of the things this means is this. It means that every desire that we have for home in this earth is a shadow that points to a greater reality that's found in Jesus. That the true home that we're really longing for is not a temporary place that we're going to find here on this earth, but it's an eternal place that God has prepared for us. What this means is this, you guys. It means that whenever you, you feel a sense of homesickness or whenever you feel a sense of nostalgia for the past, that for the Christian, for those of us who follow Jesus, that shouldn't propel us to the past And it shouldn't propel us to the present, but instead it should propel us to the future, right? Because for us, the greatest home that we can imagine is not in the past. It's not current. It's in the future. It's what God has prepared for us. Sometimes I think um, that for those of us who follow Jesus, I know not not everyone follows Jesus, but sometimes I think for those of us who follow Jesus, uh, we have a a misunderstanding about, about the eternal place that God has prepared for us in heaven. I think sometimes we misunderstand it. And you can hear it sometimes in the questions that we've asked. We, we've actually talked about this before at the Medina East Campus, but you can hear it in the questions that we ask. And so, for example, when, when we talk about heaven, a lot of times people will say things like, yeah, that, I, heaven sounds really great and everything, but like, is my dog going to be there? Because I just want to make sure, my, I can't imagine having eternity without my dog. And, I, and we said, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if your dog's going to be there necessarily, right? Some people are like, is my cat going to be there? And we, we've talked about this in the past. Definitively, no, your cat will not be in heaven, right? And so if you're a Steelers fan that has a cat, I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm just picking on you, right? Um, right, but we, we say, are my hobbies going to be in heaven? Is there, my pleasure's going to be in heaven? Is sex going to be in heaven? Like, please answer that for me. And, and, and a lot of times we ask these questions, right? But if you think about it, what's behind those questions, What's behind this question is a, is a suspicion that heaven is not going to feel like home. My dog is home. Is he going to be there? Because if he's not there, it's not going to be good, right? My, my hobbies, and that makes me feel at home, and that's not going to be there. I don't know. 
And listen, Jesus makes it abundantly clear in this passage that when we enter into the eternity that he has prepared for us, that it's not going to feel like we're leaving home. It's going to feel like for the first time ever, you're coming home. You're coming home. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, No eye has seen and no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what God has prepared for those who love him. Man, you have no idea what God has in store for you. The home that he has established for you. You're not going to feel like you're leaving home. You're going to feel like for the first time, you're coming home. And this is why for the follower of Christ, what this means is that we, we shouldn't, when we feel a sense of nostalgia, it shouldn't cause us to look back at a time longingly. But instead, it should stir our hearts and our affections to the future. This is why in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says this. He says, don't say, why were the old days better than these? Don't do that, he says. Why? It's not wise to ask such questions. See, what Solomon is saying is, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in God, then it makes no sense for you to look backwards and say, oh, my best days are behind me. Oh, my, my, the greatest home I ever experienced was in the past. He says, no, that's not true. Because if you're a follower of God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your best life is ahead of you. Your best life is later. It's with Christ. Your best home is not in the past, but it's in the future. The writer of Hebrews, he actually wrote about the heroes of the faith, guys like Moses and Abraham and David, these guys who did incredible things for God. And you know what he says? He says they all had one thing in common. I thought this was so cool. Look what Hebrews 11 says. It says, and all these people, all the heroes of the faith, they died while still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. Listen to this. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads on this earth. Our home is not here. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country that they can call their own. For if they had longed for the country that they came from, they would have gone back. Then look at this. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. And that is why God is not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The Bible says what all the heroes have in common is this. They all yearned for a home that God had prepared for them. They realized that they were foreigners and strangers in this place. And it was because they had their eyes fixed on the place that God had prepared for them, that homeland, they were able to endure this life. So listen to me. If you're a person where this holiday is hard for you, it's hard because you can't stop but think back to the people that you've lost. You can't help but stop and think about something that you've lost at one point in time. What's going to give you the hope that you need to endure this season? Here's what it is. It's that your best days aren't behind you. That home is not something that was in the past. It's coming in the future. And it will give you power to endure this season. And for those of us who this season, we get to go enjoy our families. And that's awesome. Some of you are looking forward to the traditions in the family. Listen, anytime you get a sense, that warmth, that feeling of, yes, I'm home. When you get that, man, trace that shadow to its substance. Because it's about Jesus. And it points to a home that he's created for us. And the last thing is this, and I'll be real, real quick. If you're a person who right now is investigating Christ, what this means, what this truth means for us is this. It means that Jesus Christ is the only home for the wandering heart. He is the only home for our wandering hearts. For some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You are wandering through this life, trying to find a place to call home right now. 
You are trying to find a place where you can find acceptance. You are trying to find a place of belonging. You are trying to find a place that will help identify you with who you are. And we are meandering through this life trying to find home. What this passage tells us is that Jesus Christ is the only one who can safely bring us home to God. Jesus Christ is the only satisfying thing for your wandering heart. Look, for some of you, I understand you're in a place, you're investigating Christ, you're trying to figure it all out. But listen, I just want to encourage you, man, that if you've never embraced Christ, maybe for the first time, look, Jesus says it in this passage. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He says, listen, no one, no one comes to God. No one comes home except through me. I'm the only way. Now, I know for some of you, maybe, maybe if you wrestle with Christianity, one of the things you wrestle with is the exclusivity of Christianity. How dare you say that Jesus Christ is the only way? Are you telling me that there's no other way to God except through Jesus? Let me put it this way. Um, If Jesus Christ was not the only way to to heaven, was not the only way to God, then that means that Christmas, him coming to this earth, was in vain. And that means that him dying on the cross was unnecessary. And I don't think that that's the case. And the Bible tells us that, that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. And listen, if you've never embraced Christ, maybe for the first time this morning, man, you need to come home. You need to come home. Come home to God. The Bible says you were created by God and you were created for God. He's the only home for your wandering heart. For some of you this morning, maybe at one time you, you followed Christ, but you've since meandered from him. You've wandered away. Come back home. Come back home to God because he is the desire that our hearts are longing for. And so, This holiday season, as we yearn for home, as we long for home, I hope that we can see that it's a shadow. The reality is found in Christ who came to bring us home. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much for your word to us this morning. God, you're good. And it's amazing to me that in Genesis, it tells us that in the beginning, you designed us for home. And uh, and Father, you're the one who came to bring us home. And so Jesus, I ask that this, this season, as we... Uh, as we are home with our loved ones and as we're surrounded by a sense of homeness for some of us, God, that we'd be able to trace that shadow to its substance to see, God, that our real home, the everlasting home that you have for us is what our hearts are truly craving. And God, for the, for the person in this room who's investigating you, I ask, God, that you would bring them home. It would help us to see that you are the only way, that you're the one who created the pathway for us to get home. Help us to embrace it. God, I thank you. Man, thank you so much that you didn't just leave us as meandering in this life, wandering without any purpose, without any sense of direction. But Jesus, you've given us direction in this life and you yourself have come here to bring us home. So Father, I pray that we would embrace you and we'd sing out to you and we would thank you for the good work that you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.